uh, man, the, the church is, I, I think we all have a personal relationship with the church to one extent or the, another, but uh, there's so much confusion about what the church is and what the church is not and what the church should look like and all of those things. But we do understand from Scripture that the church is something that Christ gave His blood for, we're told in Acts chapter 20. And that's just the truth. Uh, the church is the mechanism through which the world will be reached with the gospel, and we're so thankful for it. And uh, looking forward to the series next week, beginning uh, with Pastor. Pray for him as he and Lisa come home, and uh, thankful for the opportunity to be a part of that. Nehemiah chapter 4, if you have your Bibles this morning. Nehemiah chapter 4, Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We'll get there in just a moment. Hard to believe we're coming into our fall season of ministry. Um, anyone have kids start school this week? Okay, next week? Okay, couple? Must not be a lot of kids in this service represented. That's all right. Uh, last uh, service I asked that question and parents were like cheering and stuff because the kids are, you know, one of those. <laughs> but we're coming out of the season that is summer and getting into the fall. Um, but really, as we've come through the summer, a lot of folks did different things for vacations and that. Anyone take a trip this summer with their family? How about a road trip? How'd that work out for you? Anyone? You still like your family? Because sometimes those trips, they start off really good, but they don't end really good. You know what I mean? You guys have had one of those before? Um, I guess it was two years ago, my family and I, we were kind of in the middle of a very busy season and just wanted to get away for a couple of days. We have some friends who have a house uh, a couple hours from here. It's only supposed to be about three hours from here. It ended up being about seven hours from here. I've got four kids, and they go to the bathroom on different schedules. And I can yell all I want and say, well, we're not stopping, but we're going to stop. I mean, it's just it's how it works, right? So um, they gave us their house for a couple of days and said, hey, come up here, uh, kind of a ranch property, and, and uh, you guys can spend some time, and we were looking forward to that, so we made plans to do that. And started driving, but because the trip was supposed to take three hours and it ended up taking like seven hours, uh, it was dark by the time we got up there. And this is a place that I knew about and that I was looking forward to going to, and I'd gotten the family excited about it because of what was there. Uh, but I didn't exactly know where it was, exactly. But I thought, well, the GPS will get us close enough. How hard can it be, right? When you get there, it's going to be fine. It's going to be easy. And we got there, and it was kind of on a country road, and the house sits back from the road, so you can't exactly see the house from the road. And so uh, we're going back there, and it was dark. My family still makes fun of me for saying how dark it was, but it was dark, we were driving. You ever been on a country road without lights? It's dark, right? It's hard to see stuff. It's hard to find what you're looking for, particularly if you don't know where you're going. And it was apparently too dark for the GPS because it couldn't get me there either. It got us close. <laughs> As we're driving up and down this road, and, and at first it was like, oh, it's got to be right up here. It'll be fine. Trust me, we'll get there. By the time this whole thing was over, I was getting out of the car like shaking fences to see if the gate was open because we were going to go into that place, whatever that place was. And it was getting worse and worse, and it was getting darker and darker, and I just kept saying, like, it's so dark, I can't see anything. And my lovely wife finally said, stop telling us how dark it is. We know it's dark. The kids are in the back seat panicking. My, uh, my seven-year-old, Everett, he, he's eight now, he was seven then, um, uh, smart kid, he had been looking forward to this trip and declared, as we were traveling down this very, very dark road, all I want to do is go back home. Let's just go back home. <laughs> it took us seven hours to get here. We're not going home. And then he say, said this, very insightful statement for a seven-year-old. He said, this is the worst night in my young life. That's what he said. <laughs> I feel like we have a good home, you know, not a lot of bad nights in his young life, but apparently that was the worst. 
You know, there are times in all of our lives where we're going down a road we plan to be on and we were headed toward a destination we had hoped to get to. We know why we started when we started, but halfway through the trip, as the thing drags on and life gets dark, it's easy to get to the place where all you want to do is go back. It's easy to get to the place in life where you say, I'm not sure why we even started this thing. There was a moment in time when Everett was telling me that this was the worst night in his young life. I was ready to pull the car over and let him get out. If that's what he wanted, you can get out. I don't know where we are, but you don't either. If you want to get out, you can. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how I felt. (laughs) We've been talking over the last few weeks about trials in our lives. Those not what I thought moments of life. Those moments in our lives where we're doing our thing and it's just not working out the way that we had planned for it to work out. Those times when we look at a relationship and say, this is not what I thought this relationship would be like. This is not what I thought my financial situation would be like. This is not what I thought this work thing would be like. This is not what I thought. I'm in a place that I didn't see coming. We've mentioned over the last few weeks that all of us are in a battle of some kind. It's as if all of us are deployed to a war zone, and even in a war zone there are moments of peace, but those battles do come. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, often they come when we least expect them. And in the middle of those battles, those battles that are unexpected, perhaps the most important first decision you can make is the decision to not stay where you are and die, but instead to put one foot in front of the other and march forward. Because the first decision you need to make is that you're not going to allow the battle to overwhelm you or allow the battle to destroy you. But something can happen. We can say, well, I'm not going to allow the battle to destroy me. I will put my head down and I will keep marching forward because that's what God would want. And there are a lot of Christians who are very angry and very frustrated because they feel like they're following God. They put their head down and they're marching forward, but they've resigned themselves to the fact that God has put them in the middle of a situation they'll never understand, one that has no value or purpose, and that their life now consists of hoping it ends without too much chaos. But making the decision to put one foot in front of the other, making the decision to march instead of die, doesn't mean we resign ourselves to a life of misery. You see, in the middle of the battle, in the middle of the mess that we find ourselves in in life, there can be redemption if we look for it. There can be value found when we make a decision for God. It's in those moments of battle, those moments of trial, that we really nail down the decision to follow God. It's in the middle of those battles that we understand once and for all who we are and whose we are. That our name is not tied to a trauma, and our name is not tied to a difficulty, our name is not tied to a battle. It's bigger than that if we're following God. We redeem those moments, those messes in our lives when we finally understand that our purpose is to glorify God, even in the battle. But somewhere along the way, having made the right decisions, having sought redemption in the midst of the fight, It is possible, if the battle continues, that just like on a family road trip, where you knew why you started, and the goal was clear at the beginning, the battle lasts long enough, things get so dark that you just want to step back and say, I'm not doing this anymore. 
speaking to a group of folks who have come to church this morning. I have to assume that you came in today because you at least hope, if you don't believe, you at least hope that the answers for many of the issues you're dealing with in your own life are found in this book. Now you could be a lot of places on the spectrum. Perhaps you've decided that the answers are there and you will follow what's found. And maybe you've tried everything else and you're just hoping there's something here. Regardless, I believe that in a church like this one, this is a group of people who have decided to keep going, who are trying to find the purpose and the value, but are perhaps overwhelmed because the fight just won't end. Because it seems like it's getting harder, not easier, because the road ahead that once made sense is now so dark. I'm going to read some really fun Sunday morning statistics to you. We're told that divorce rates for adults age 50 and up have doubled in the past 25 years. Those at the highest risk of suicide in the United States are older than 65. The Southern Baptist Convention published a study a few years ago that says 70% of teenagers involved in church youth groups stop attending church within two years of their high school graduation. We're told that between four and 7,000 churches close their doors every year. Now, there are a lot of reasons for each one of these statistics, and we could break them down and try to figure it all out. We might even be able to explain it away, but the reality is this. There are a lot of people in families and in churches and in life situations that have done the right thing for a long time. For a long time, they put one foot in front of the other. For a long time, they've tried to find value and meaning and purpose. For a long time, they've done the right thing. But somewhere along the way, they decided that they were just going to quit. They just couldn't do it anymore. The final message in this series this morning, I really like to look at a, a singular verse and answer the question, what do I do when I just don't want to fight anymore? What do I do when it's just been too long? I'm tired, I've been hurt, the burden's too heavy, I'm not sure the situation will ever end. What do I do? How can I possibly keep fighting? We come to our passage in the book of Nehemiah. If you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, you know that Perhaps the most succinct, clearest leadership lesson in all of the Bible is found in this book. Nehemiah was a great leader. He was the man that God used to rally the, the children of Israel, rally the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem who were coming out of exile back to Jerusalem. He was rallying them and he was organizing them and he was, per, uh, he was preparing them to build the walls around the city of Jerusalem. They had been away for some time, and another nation had taken over and began to govern that area. We're told that the walls around Jerusalem were burned down in some places, knocked down in other places, uh, that the city was in a general state of disarray. And Nehemiah, believing it was God who was leading him, rallied the people around to build this place up as a home for their children, as a place to worship God, bringing it back to the place where it once was. It's an amazing story. As they followed God, they rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem in only 52 days. An amazing feat. But in the midst of this moment, this battle that the Jewish people were in to rebuild their city, their home, 
there was an enemy. And I'll tell you this at the outset, if you try to do anything good, there will be an enemy. <laughs> there are times, and you guys have had these times too, there are times in my life where I'm just going about my business, doing my thing, and trying to do the best that I can, and all of us are struggling. This is one of those funny things, right? All of us are just doing the best we can. <laughs> like, let's be honest, we're all just doing the best we can. And someone will come along, and they'll criticize, or they'll kind of present themselves as an enemy, and you just want to step back and go, what, what in the world? I'm doing the best I can. These people were doing the best they could to restore this city to what God wanted it to be. Uh, but they, they ended up finding themselves in a fight. Because an enemy came that didn't want to relinquish control. An enemy came that didn't want them there. An enemy came that wanted to stop the forward progress and the motion. And that enemy presented themselves on the work site one day. And they said, if you guys don't stop, we will kill you. If you don't stop, we will disrupt what you've done. In fact, what you've done is worthless anyhow. A very real enemy presented themselves to the children of God. Nehemiah is an amazing leader. And with the enemy standing on one side of him and the workers who are just doing their best standing on the other, he gave them a very short pep talk. Verse number 14 Nehemiah is speaking. He says, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. Verse 15, And it came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one, unto his work. Before verse 14, the enemy presents himself, and in the middle of verse 14, Nehemiah is trying to rally the troops. Between 14 and 15, a decision needs to be made. These people were engaged in a fight. They were in a battle. They were in a mess because they were trying to do the right thing with a very real enemy in front of them. And you need to put yourself in this context. What battle are you fighting right now? What thing are you in the middle of right now? What thing that you know is worthwhile, but you've kind of lost your way as it's progressed and as it's gotten darker? What thing are you dealing with right now? Why are you going to keep going? The people in this passage decided that they would continue on, and when they did, the enemies went away. But there was a moment in time where a decision was required. When all I want to do is quit, how do I stay in the fight? Here's the first one. They're all from this verse. When I want to quit, how do I stay in the fight? Number one, don't give fear control. Don't give fear control. Let's look at our verse. Verse 14, and I looked up and rose up. And said unto the nobles, and to the rulers, and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. You know what happens when you become overwhelmed by life, and overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, and overwhelmed by the difficulties and the trials, and whatever it is you want to call what you're going through? Fear begins to speak. And if we're not careful, we will allow fear to have control. The name Nehemiah, it means Yahweh comforts. He was a comforter, and he was a strong leader, but he knew at this moment in time what the folks needed was comfort. 
He knew they were afraid and he knew that they didn't understand all that was happening around him. And the best he could say was, don't be afraid of them. This is, this is a really important thing here. The enemy that they were dealing with was not a, a figurative enemy. They were real people. And they weren't somewhere else. They were right there. Nehemiah, as, as I picture this, is literally standing, speaking to the people with the enemy behind him. They can see the enemy. Now that's important for this reason. Often the fears that we have, the anxieties that we hold, they're irrational. <laughs> can I get a witness? Irrational, right? We've all had irrational fears. And we may know they're irrational, and we may even voice those to someone else, and sometimes when we tell others what we're afraid of, they'll say something like this, that's foolish, that's silly. There's no reason to be afraid of that. Here's the thing about fear. It may seem irrational to someone else, but if it's your fear, it's as real as these people standing in front of the, the Jewish folks who are building, saying, we're going to kill you. It may not be real to anyone else, your fear, but it's real to you. In your mind, there is a voice. <laughs> that voice of fear, it's kind of back here, it's always in the back somewhere, and it's always kind of quiet. But it seems that the longer the battle rages, it gets louder and louder and louder. General Patton made the statement, you've heard it before, fatigue makes cowards of us all. You start off right, you start off knowing exactly what you're going to do. There's a small uh, voice of doubt in the back of your head, but as this thing grows, eventually that voice of doubt and fear is screaming in your face. You know what that's like? You ever experienced that? Of course you have. And when fear is screaming in your face, it's so loud we cannot hear anything else. We can't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit that ministers to us, that guides us, that leads us into truth. We can't hear it. We can't hear the voice of friends and counselors who care for us. We can't hear them. Because we've given fear control. In dealing with fear... When fear is shouting in your face, there's two things you need to do. And I don't think this is on your notes, but you can write this down if you'd like. There are two things you need to do when fear is shouting in your face. Number one, realize that the overwhelming spirit of fear that you are experiencing does not come from God. When fear is shouting, it's screaming, it's got your attention, you're afraid. When that moment happens, realize that the overwhelming spirit of fear that you are experiencing does not come from God. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, you've heard the verse. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Amen and amen, right there. <laughs> I like verses like that one. It's not very ambiguous. People will read verses and then they'll explain verses and you can kind of go like, I'm not sure that's exactly what that means. This isn't one of those. You may be overwhelmed by fear. You may have the spirit of fear. Uh, that fear may be all in your face and, and driving the decisions that you make, but understand it has not come from God. Again, I believe you're here this morning because you want to hear from God. I believe you're here this morning because you want to do what God would have for you to do. And understand that that spirit of fear, that's not God. There's a second part, though. 
realize the spirit of fear doesn't come from God, but number two, refuse then to give it a voice. Refuse to give fear a voice because that's what we do. I'll make a statement. I wrote it down so I wouldn't get it wrong because I know some people will not agree with it. <laughs> Sometimes I say things I don't remember later. And then people get mad about what I said that I don't remember, and I have to agree with them. This isn't going to be one of those times. <laughs> if people are going to be mad at me, I'd like to know that I meant it. Here's the statement. Decisions made in response to fear will always be the wrong decisions. Decisions made in response to fear will always be the wrong decisions. When you give fear a voice... Fear begins to tell you what to do. Now, fear can be the catalyst that causes you to make good decisions because you realize fear has a voice and I need to keep that voice down. I don't want to let fear drive this thing. I'm going to make good decisions. But when you let fear make the decisions in your life, you're making the wrong decisions. When you make financial decisions out of fear, they're going to be the wrong decisions. When you make relationship decisions out of fear, they're going to be the wrong decisions. When you make vocational decisions out of fear, you're going to make the wrong decisions. When you make spiritual decisions out of fear, you're going to make the wrong decisions. Why are you leaving the church? Because I'm afraid if I don't, then. Why are you leaving that relationship? Because I'm afraid of what might happen if I don't. Why are you doing this? Well, because I'm afraid. Fear should never have a voice in your life. Because fear will always take you down a road not intended by God. Romans 8 and verse 15 says simply, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You know what fear does? It creates bondage. Fear puts you in a place where you're in bondage, where you believe you cannot make another decision or do another thing, or your world will fall apart, or your relationships will fall apart, or something else will fall apart. If you don't do what fear tells you to do, it's bondage. And yet the Bible tells us that in Christ, we have not been born into or received the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He is our Father. What do you do when you don't want to go on? <laughs> when you just want to quit? Well, first of all, refuse to give fear control. We see the second thing as we continue reading. Nehemiah said, Be not ye afraid of them. Then he said this, Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. What do you do when you no longer want to go on? Well, remember what God has already done. Remember what God has already done. We look at these folks and Nehemiah is speaking to them and he says in the midst of this trial, this difficulty, it seems overwhelming, but remember God. Remember what He has done. And we look at this and have to ask the question, what did He do for them? As Nehemiah made this statement, the folks knew exactly what he was talking about. He was taking them back to the beginning. He was saying to them, don't forget that when we were just a small family nation, God took us into Egypt to preserve our lives. 
that as we grew into a much larger nation, God delivered us as slaves from the nation of Israel, or Egypt rather, and in a dramatic fashion. There were plagues, and they wanted to get rid of us, but then they chased us. Don't forget that when we were faced with the Red Sea in front of us and the Egyptian army behind us, that God split the Red Sea and we walked across on dry land that He delivered us. Don't forget that when we were hungry, He provided manna from heaven. When we were thirsty, He provided water from a rock. When we moved into the promised land, the walls fell as we marched, step by step, moment by moment, event by event, God has provided. We get lost in all of it, don't we? We say things like, trust God. That's not what Nehemiah said. He didn't say, trust God. Again, very important. What did he say? Remember God. He wanted them to trust God, but it wasn't a vain or empty trust. It wasn't because I say so kind of trust, or because God even said so kind of trust. It was, God has done in the past, and God will do again. We've never built a wall before, guys. I know that. Uh, we, we believe we're doing what God wants us to do. Maybe we haven't seen this done before, but we've seen God do other things, and He'll do it again because He's God. And when you're in that moment where all you want to do is quit because it just doesn't make sense, because you're overwhelmed. Because you don't know if you have the resources available to make this next thing happen, whatever the next thing is. I believe Nehemiah, if he were here, would say to you, remember God. What has God done in your life? What has God done for you? We don't spend enough time reflecting on that question. <laughs> I don't know what your life story is necessarily, but I'll tell you one thing I do know for sure. That God loved all of us enough to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to leave heaven, to come to earth, to walk a sinless life on this earth, to die on a cross in your place and mine, to provide the payment for sin, a relationship with Him, and newness of life. I know, if nothing else, He's done that for you. That whosoever, that is you and me, shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. He did that for you. And if that's all He did, that would be enough. But I think if we try hard enough, we can think of other times God worked in our lives here, and He worked in our life there, and He worked in our life again and again and again and again. He gives us the breath that we breathe, the homes that we live in, the food that we eat, the relationships that we enjoy. He provides richly to us. I know we all struggle, and I know we don't have all of the things necessarily we believe we should. I know not everything is wonderful for everyone all the time. I understand that. But I also understand that a God who loved us enough to leave heaven and pay the price for our sin is a God who can be trusted. Isaiah 41 and verse 10, God speaking to the nation of Israel said simply, Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We can have confidence in God. Nehemiah said, hey guys, I know it seems bad right now, but you can trust God. You're in the battle that God has set before you. You're doing what God wants you to do. And if it's God's fight and it's God's battle, then you can trust Him for the outcome. I believe these verses have been included in each message over the last couple of weeks. But they're so foundational to what we believe 
Hebrews 11 and verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. We must have faith to please God, but there is no need for faith if there is not also adversity. The adversity helps us to have the faith that we need in God, and we find the faith, Romans 10 and verse 17, by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God tells us, and God shows us, He can be trusted. But check this out. And this is something that I've really been learning because this is a hard one. <laughs> Faith, it's not about control or outcomes. Faith is not about control or outcomes. Faith is not about believing enough that God will so that He does. Faith is not about getting God to do what we want God to do. It's not about control or outcomes. It's about trust. Faith is about God's ability to do what He believes is best. I don't know how your battle will end or how your situation will resolve. I have no idea. But I do know there is victory when our confidence is in God. And when our confidence is in God, then it doesn't matter how it resolves. Faith is trusting God enough to do the work that He has set before us and leaving the rest up to Him. And when we do that, when we take the control out of our hands, the weight also goes away. There is freedom when we understand that our responsibility is following God and His responsibility is everything else. Have you been in the fight a long time? Has it gotten darker instead of lighter? <laughs> more difficult instead of easier? Less clear instead of more clear? What do I do? Trust God. Trust Him for the control. Trust Him for the outcome. Trust that your job is to follow Him and allow Him to do His job. He said, remember the Lord. He said, great and terrible. What a description. But in this three-point challenge, <laughs> he makes another statement. It's a very pragmatic statement, but very important. He said, and fight. And fight. And fight. He did not say, if you'll do the right thing, it's going to get really easy. That's not what he said. He did not say if you make the right decision here, things are going to get really simple, it's going to make sense, and you'll have it all figured out, and then you'll be, answer, be able to answer the why question. He didn't say that. He said you need to stop being afraid, you need to remember what God has done, and then you need to be willing to fight. But he goes beyond that. For your brethren, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. What do you do when you don't want to keep going? Remember that some things are worth fighting for. Some things are worth fighting for in a weird kind of parallel universe way. <laughs> Our society, while in absolute chaos, fighting about everything, is screaming that we shouldn't fight about anything. It's, it's the weirdest thing. You watch the news, you've got a bunch of people yelling at each other about how you shouldn't yell at each other. Fighting about how you shouldn't fight. <laughs> It doesn't make sense. 
But the Bible would tell us, and certainly Nehemiah at this moment in time would say, hey, there are some things worth fighting for. Again, this is the gospel story. (laughs) Why did Christ come? Well, because apparently God decided that we were worth fighting for. And he did. There are some things at stake in the fight that will be lost if we stop. Remember these folks as they build, uh, they're not just building a wall, they're building a future. They're building a home. They're building an opportunity to continue to worship God. They're building a place that they can go to as they leave captivity. They're building something that will be left for the generation that comes behind them. For their children. For their spouses. For their grandchildren. There were some things that these people needed to be reminded of that were worth fighting for. And so it is for us. Our comfort and peace are not the highest motivation in life. A generation of people around us who would say that comfort and peace are the goal. Comfort and peace are not the highest motivation. We fight for those that cannot fight on their own, and we live to show the way forward. The Apostle Paul said this in a number of places. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 6, he said it this way, And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. What was Paul saying? He was saying very, very simply that the stuff that we're dealing with, the the difficulties that we're engaged in, the battles that we're fighting, the hardship that we're enduring, it's not for us. We're doing this for you. Paul believed at his very core that he wanted to live the kind of life that was worth following. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Paul would say there are some things worth fighting for. There are some people worth fighting for. There are some churches worth fighting for. There are some kids who are growing up in a broken community and a broken society. They're worth fighting for. In 2 Timothy, Paul again is speaking to a young preacher He says to Timothy, In the things that thou hast heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. He's saying to Timothy, Look, Timothy, in your pastoral ministry, don't ever forget that it's not about you. It's about those that you have the opportunity to influence with your life. What a truth. A question we all need to consider Who are we fighting for? Who are you fighting for? What do I do when I feel like all I can do is quit? When the only prayer I can really pray is, God, I'm still here, where are you? When you feel as though you've been abandoned and you're alone, it's getting darker by the minute, fear begins to creep in. And all you want to do is walk away. Nehemiah would say, well, the first thing you need to do is refuse to give fear a voice. Don't let fear take control. Remember what God has done. And then don't ever forget that there are some people worth fighting for. Crazy thing about life, and I think the type of spiritual battles that we've been talking about over the last few weeks is that it's very hard to measure 
success. It's very hard to decide if you're winning or losing. You can't look at a scoreboard and know. There are some people that use money and power and fame and other things as their scoreboard, but, but for the believer, we don't measure success in terms of things. That's what makes this battle so hard. We don't always know if we're getting closer to the end. I have a picture in my office. It's a framed picture of Theodore Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, and next to it there's a quote, and the quote is this. There has never yet been a man in our history who led a life of ease whose name is worth remembering. That's a good one right there. <laughs> That's worth framing and putting in your office. He said, there's never yet been a man in our history who led a life of ease whose name is worth remembering. Let me tell you this. Success in life is not about stuff. It's about having a name that is worth remembering. That's the goal. To have a life that allows you to have a name worth remembering. There will be hardship and there will be trials and there will be those times where things are more messy than you ever thought possible. But it's worth it. Because a life worth remembering shows others how to experience victory in their own battles. It gives hope to those who seem so hopeless. It demonstrates to children growing up in a broken world that they don't need to be defined by what's happening around them. It points others to the giver of real, eternal life. But conversely, deciding that you no longer want to fight or that it's just not worth it, that is a life of wasted opportunity and influence that will extend no further than the plot of ground that they place your body. We're all in a fight. You don't get to decide that. That one's already been decided. The fights come and we're engaged in those battles whether we like it or not. And we need to make the decision to keep moving forward. We need to understand there is redemption to be found if we'll trust a God to show us what that redemption is. We can learn in the middle of the battle. We don't have to wait till we get to the other side. And when all we want to do is quit, instead of focusing on an ever-changing definition of success, just refuse to give fear control. Remember that, that God has done great things in your life. And don't ever forget that there are some things and people that are worth the fight. Trust God. Move forward. Redeem both the good and the bad. Refuse to quit and rest in the ultimate victory that has already been secured. As we understand the truth, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Well, because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that in the middle of the fight, when fear begins to scream, that we have the opportunity, if we will, to step back and understand that you are bigger than all of it. 
I pray that we would remember in the middle of the fight when all we want to do is quit, we'd remember the Lord. We would trust You, God. That we would experience enough clarity to step back and evaluate our lives and understand that there are some people, there are spouses, there are children, there are grandchildren, there are nieces and nephews, there are those kids in the neighborhood, there are those people at work, there are people in our lives that are worth the fight. That God is not about us. It's about living in